Chapter 7 Knights Are you God? Percival, Chrétien de Troyes In the middle of August 955, a time of year when specks of stardust always seemed to sparkle in the night sky, Otto I, King of the Germans, assembled an army a little way west of the city of Augsburg. Otto was an experienced king and a veteran of many skirmishes and battles. He had ruled Germany for nearly 20 years, working hard to bring the disparate territories of what had once been Carolingian Eastern Francia under his direct control, strengthening the crown's authority and stamping down rebellious nobles who tried to resist him. Experience had made him tough. As a chronicler named Widukind of Corvey put it, Otto had learned to play the dual roles of the most powerful warrior and the highest commander. And at Augsburg, he would need to draw on every ounce of his talent, for the city was in grave peril from a dangerous enemy known as the Magyars. The Magyars had a long history of encroaching on the German sphere of interest. They were a pagan, tribal people who had migrated towards Central Europe from the east to settle the vast plains which spread out from the foothills of the Carpathian Mountains. Magyar fighting men were skilled riders who fought with bows and arrows from the saddle. They were dexterous, lightning-fast and deadly. Christian writers in the German realm spread tall stories of their unique ferocity. They claimed the Magyars destroyed fortifications, set fire to churches and killed the people. Alleged that, to spread fear, they drank the blood of their victims and swore the first thing Magyar mothers did on giving birth was to take a sharp knife and mutilate their babies' faces so that they will be able to tolerate wounds. Needless to say, this was little more than hearsay and libel, but it spoke to a fear of the Magyars deep-rooted among the ordinary folk of Germany, a fear that was every bit the equal of the Western Franks' terror of the Vikings. So in the midsummer of 955, when Otto of Germany heard a Magyar army had set its sights on Augsburg, it was his duty as king to drive them away. It ought to have been possible, if not easy, to defend Augsburg. Nestled between the duchies of Swabia and Bavaria, the city was the fortified seat of a senior bishop. Its walls were low, and without defensive towers, but it occupied a reasonably safe geographical spot at the junction of two waterways, which impeded the approach to the city on three sides. Just north of the city walls, the river Wertach merged with the Lech, which then flowed on a few dozen miles until it emptied into the Danube. Plenty more tributary rivers cut through the plains to the east, feeding large areas of swamp almost unnavigable to conventional troops. The problem, however, was that the Magyars were no conventional troops. Like the barbarian tribespeople who had swept into Europe in the twilight years of the Western Roman Empire, they excelled at fighting in open, grassy terrain, for their ancestors had learned the ways of war on the Eurasian steppe. They knew their way around plainlands, and the efficacy of their battle tactics had been proven in past generations. In 910, 
the 16-year-old Carolingian king Louis the Child had fought a Magyar force at Augsburg and been humiliated as Magyar horsemen feigned retreat, lured his troops forward, then cut them down without mercy. This had been the undoing of Louis the Child, who died a year or so later, tormented by melancholy stemming from his military failure. Otto could not afford a similar defeat, so he approached Augsburg with care. Otto arrived on the 10th of August to find the city totally surrounded. One monastic analyst estimated very improbably that there were 100,000 Magyars outside it. Whatever their real numbers, these Magyar warriors, under leaders called Bulksu, Lehel and Taksoni, were unquestionably battle-hardened, having already plundered their way through Bavaria, which they devastated and occupied from the Danube to the dark forests on the rim of the mountains. Moreover, they were equipped with siege towers and catapults, with which they'd been pelting the city for several days. The citizens of Augsburg had manned the walls, where they were bravely commanded by their bishop, Ulrich, who sat on horseback in his episcopal robes, protected by neither shield nor chainmail nor helmet as missiles and stones whizzed around him. But it was clear they would not be able to hold out for very long. Bishop Ulrich was committed to his cause but he had little to work with. Besides his efforts to organise the citizens, he could do no more than pray, perform the mass, and instruct a group of nuns to parade around the city streets, carrying a cross. Otto had better weapons at hand. He travelled to Augsburg from Saxony, where earlier that summer he had been fighting Slavs. Although his forces were smaller numerically than the Magyars, they were disciplined, led by capable nobles including Conrad the Red, Duke of Lorraine, and trained to fight in a quite different way to the Magyars. Rather than sitting light in their saddles, loosing off arrows and relying on agility and speed, the German troops were organised around a corps of heavy cavalry. These were mounted warriors who wore thick armour including helmets, and fought with sword and lance, running their enemies down and hacking them to pieces. Riding in good order, and given the chance to fight at close quarters, heavy cavalry could usually be expected to defeat light-mounted archers. The only question was whether the Magyars would give Otto's men the sort of battle they wanted. As it turned out, they did. After arriving on the 10th of August, Otto ordered his men to confront the Magyars. Unwilling to abandon the city, the Magyars stood and fought. Initially, the battle was evenly contested, particularly when the Magyars took aim at Otto's baggage train and tried to exploit difficulties in communication along the German lines. But eventually, Otto's forces' organisation told... Realising they could not break their opponents' ranks, the Magyars reverted to their favourite tactic, the feigned retreat. They turned tail and fled east, across the river Lech, hoping Otto's men would follow, just as Louis the Childs had done in 910. But Otto was a grizzled warrior and cannier than Louis had been. Instead of sending his men galloping into a trap, he ordered them to advance only cautiously crossing the Lech, but going no further, stopping instead to capture the Magyar's camp on the riverbank and release the German prisoners who had been taken during the fighting. Meanwhile, 
he sent messengers to outride the retreating Magyars, asking Bavarian Christians further east to impede the enemy's flight by blocking bridges. With this done, over the course of the following two or three days, Otto was able to lead out detachments of his mounted troops to round up the now fractured Magyar forces. The chronicler Widdikind left a gory account of what happened. Some of the Magyars, whose horses were worn out, sought refuge in nearby villages, where they were surrounded by armed men and were burned along with their buildings, he wrote. Others swam across the nearby river, but were swept away by the torrent and perished. Three leaders of the Hungarian people, i.e. the Magyars, were captured and were hanged, suffering a shameful death which they richly deserved. Victory was total. Otto's army had defeated the Magyars, saved Augsburg, and, in the eyes of the monastic writers at least, given living proof of God's ability to award victory to the righteous. Otto himself was lauded as a great king and formally crowned as emperor in Rome in 962, just as Charlemagne had been in 800. His dynasty, the Ottonians, ruled Germany for another 60 years, and the clash, which came to be known as the Battle of Lechfeld, gained semi-legendary status. Its casualties, like Duke Conrad the Red, who was killed in the fighting when he loosened his armour to cool off, and was hit in the throat by an arrow, were hailed as heroes and even martyrs. And the outcome of the battle came to be seen as a pivotal moment in the history of the Germans and Magyars. After Lechfeld, the waves of attacks from the dreaded, baby-defacing Hungarians seemed to come abruptly to an end. A curtain fell on the waves of so-called barbarian migrations that had been a feature of Western European life for nearly five centuries. Within a generation, a Magyar leader called Veik would convert to Christianity, change his name to Stephen, and rule from 1001 to 1038 as a king within the orbit of the Roman Church. All of this could be traced, or so the theory went, to the turning point of Lechfeld. Yet Lechfeld was notable also for another, less immediately obvious reason. Although today it is a battle scarcely known outside Central Europe, Lechfeld can be seen as a symbolic moment in the grand march of medieval history. For the triumph of heavy cavalry over light-mounted archers coincided with the dawn of an age in which the sort of armoured, lance-wielding horsemen whom Otto commanded began to take centre stage in Western warfare. For the next two centuries, Powerful, mounted warriors dominated battlefields, while also beginning to burnish their status in society at large. The Battle of Lechfeld did not cause that shift, but it did show which way the wind was blowing. The European knight was coming of age. From the 10th century, the status and importance of knights rocketed across the medieval west. Within a couple of generations, Frankish-style heavy cavalry evolved to become preeminent on battlefields from the British Isles to Egypt and the Middle East. As they did so, the social cachet of being able to fight in the saddle also soared. By the 12th century, the knight was a man whose importance in wartime was rewarded with landed wealth and high rank during peacetime.
and around him was emerging a distinctive cult of knightliness known as chivalry, which would inform art, literature and high culture long beyond the end of the Middle Ages. Indeed, the tropes and rituals of knighthood and chivalry persist in many Western countries right down to the present day. In terms of popular perception, the knight is arguably the most distinctive legacy the Middle Ages have left to us. How knighthood came to be and what occurred during the High Middle Ages to make it such a powerful, enduring, international institution is the question we will try to unravel in the remainder of this chapter. Spears and Stirrups Humans and horses have cooperated in battle since at least the Bronze Age. The standard of Ur, a magnificently decorated box created in the mid-3rd century BC, today a treasure of the British Museum in London, depicts a detailed procession of men in war array. In fine mosaics of bright shell and coloured stone, the standard shows some soldiers marching on foot while others ride in horse-drawn carts. Man and beast work together here in bloody synchronicity. The cart riders brandish spears and battle axes, the horses, wide-eyed, proud and decked out in fine ceremonial harness, trample over enemy troops' prone bodies. It is a frightening scene, and far from the only source that emphasises just how important a role horses have played in war for the last 4,500 years. The ancients knew all about using horses in battle. In Athens in the 4th century BC, the historian Xenophon wrote extensively about military horsemanship, advising his readers on the best ways to pick, break and train a warhorse, and recommending body armour to protect one's midriff when the rider intends to fling his javelin or strike a blow. Several hundred years later, Republican Rome institutionalised the concept of military horsemanship. Equestrians were the second highest rank of society below the senators. And although for most of the Roman imperial age, equestrians were not fighting men, but soft-handed financiers and bureaucrats, there was nevertheless a place for real cavalry within the infantry-dominated Roman army. During the 4th century AD, Fagetius, the late Roman Empire's foremost author of military manuals, wrote in detail about the best horses for use in battle. These were those bred and used by the Huns, Burgundians and Frisians. Later, in Byzantium, when Justinian's great general Belisarius campaigned against the Persians and Goths, he developed cataphracts, cataphracti, men and horses who were both protected by full-length metal armour. These cataphracts rode against their enemies in shock formation, charging headlong while waving spears and maces. And they were not alone. Persians and Parthians, Arabs and barbarians, the ancient warrior classes of China, Japan and India, in one way or another, all of these developed the use of horses in battle. Yet if it was not original, medieval knighthood was still revolutionary. Once the Western Roman Empire collapsed, the only settled powers in Europe who used horses to a significant degree on the battlefield were the Arabs and Visigoths. The Franks knew how to trade, breed and deploy war horses. But for a long time, when it came to the biggest clashes between their armies and those of foreign powers, the Franks fell back on foot soldiers. 
when Charles Martel defeated the great Arab army at the Battle of Poitiers of AD 732, the Frankish army stood as an immovable wall to repel the Arab cavalry. Yet just two generations later, Frankish methods on the battlefield had moved on. Here, and not for the first time, the Carolingians shook things up. Squabbling and skirmishing were embedded into the Carolingian world, but much of the toughest fighting took place on the frontiers against Saxons, Slavs, Danes and Spanish Muslims. As a result, Carolingian foreign policy demanded very large, highly mobile armies that could move long distances at pace. To serve this need, Charlemagne demanded all significant landowners make themselves or a representative available for his army. He also developed corps of horsemen who could ride both to and into battle. In 792-3, Charlemagne issued a law ordering all cavalrymen to carry a spear, to be thrust and stabbed towards the enemy, rather than thrown javelin-style. This proved so effective that over the following two centuries, spear-wielding horsemen became an increasingly important part of Western medieval armies. The Latin term for such men was miles, plural milites. The old German term, necht. By the 11th century, the word had entered Old English as knichtas, from which today we have the word knight. Until the turn of the millennium, however, Western horse warriors did not quite resemble knights, for one of the crucial pieces of military technology, or rather combinations of military technologies, was not yet in place. The knight of the High Middle Ages was defined not only by his horse, but also by the specific weapons he wielded. These included slashing and stabbing sidearms, like swords and daggers, but most important was the couched lance, a long, strong, metal-tipped mutation of the spear, three or more metres in length, with a handle at its blunt end for the rider to hold. The lance was designed to be tucked under the right arm and aimed directly at the enemy as one's horse thundered forward. This was a difficult skill, but once mastered, it offered a quite different proposition to what had gone before. In the Bayeux Tapestry, embroidered in southern England to chronicle and commemorate the Norman conquest of 1066, we can still see the old-style cavalry ways in use. Most of William of Normandy's horsemen rumble towards Harold's Anglo-Saxons, holding spears javelin-style in their raised right hands, ready to jab or throw, but not to pile-drive like a boring engine. The difference between this approach and the couched lance attack was profound. With a spear, a horseman could be dangerous, agile, shocking and scary, but he was not doing much different to the footman with the same weaponry who ran beside him. With a couched lance at his disposal, however, the knight was no longer an infantryman on horseback. He had become the medieval equivalent of a guided missile. Riding in tandem with half a dozen or more other guided missiles, he was almost unstoppable. As the Byzantine princess Anna Komnene wrote in the 12th century, a Frank fighting on foot was easy prey, but a Frank on horseback could put a hole in the walls of Babylon. Yet the lance did not develop on its own. It required other technological advances to make it effective. 
the stirrup and the cantled saddle. Both served the same purpose. They counteracted the laws of physics, protecting the rider from his own momentum and allowing him to transfer all the acceleration and force of his charge through the shaft and tip of his lance. The cantled saddle was designed with a high back to keep the rider in place on impact. Stirrups allowed him to deploy his legs for balance and further resistance. The lance made him a killing machine. Without these pieces of technology, there could have been no knight. Quite when the lance-stirrup-saddle technological combination became widespread in the West, and what its consequences were, has been a matter of intense historical scrutiny and argument. It is sometimes known as the Great Stirrup Controversy. What seems reasonably certain is this. Perhaps in the 4th century AD, and certainly by the 5th, stirrups were invented in the Far East, by nomads in Siberia and what is now Mongolia. They were enthusiastically embraced by the Chinese, Japanese, Koreans and Indians, but took rather a long time to spread to the West. Eventually, however, the knowledge was transmitted via Persia and the Arab realms to the post-Roman Christian empires of the Near East and the West, so that by the 8th century, stirrups had arrived in Europe. By the 780s, stirrups were considered sufficiently commonplace that the author of a lavishly illustrated Spanish biblical commentary known as the Beatus could picture the four horsemen of the apocalypse wearing them around their diabolical feet. Although it took some time for stirrups to catch on everywhere, not until the late 11th century were they ubiquitous, eventually they transformed the way people rode and fought. True, the stirrups' rising popularity in the West coincided with a more general age of military invention. Siege engines were improving, and castle building was following suit. From the 12th century, it became increasingly common across Europe to build fortresses out of stone rather than timber and earthworks. But stirrups were no less important for being part of a general improvement in military hardware. They allowed individual riders to stay in the saddle at greater speed and to fight with greater ferocity, and the result was that knights became dominant on the battlefield and highly valued by emperors, kings and other aristocrats. Finally, as the demand for knights rose, their social position, rank and presence began to alter as well. The most contentious part of the story of the knight's origin however, is not how stirrup technology spread. It concerns the degree to which the rising preference for heavily armed, mounted warriors directly caused a social revolution in Europe and ushered in the Age of Feudalism, an all-pervasive, notionally pyramid-shaped system of social organisation in which lords granted land to their vassals in exchange for formal promises of military service, and the vassals then subcontracted it to poorer men in return for further service, either in the form of military assistance or agricultural labour, or both. Most historians would now hesitate at drawing a direct link between these two phenomena, and some argue that feudalism as a concept is far too simplistic a model to explain how medieval society really worked. Yet it is still just about uncontroversial to note that at the same time as horse-mounted warriors were becoming more firmly seated in the saddle, 
the structure of landholding across Europe was also changing. From the Knights' point of view, at least, the root cause of change was the cost of doing business. Fighting in the saddle was beastly expensive. At the turn of the first millennium, a single, fully equipped, mounted warrior would need at least three horses, male armour, a helmet, weapons including lances, a sword, an axe or mace, dagger, underclothing, several tents and flags, and one or more assistants who needed to be supplied with grooming tools, cooking utensils, food and drink. This was no small outlay. To supply and sustain a single night for one year cost approximately as much as sustaining ten peasant families for the same period. It was an astronomically expensive career and one that could only be contemplated by those who were born rich or else could be made so. One way for a knight to sustain himself was to chance his arm. Battle offered the opportunity to seize plunder, equipment and prisoners for ransom. But this was a precarious way to fund a career. A more reliable route was to find a patron and eventually become a landowner. Thus, from around the 9th century onwards, across the West, men who fought on horseback were awarded hundreds of acres of farmable land, which they held in exchange for making themselves available to fight for the person, a higher lord or king, who had granted it to them. In the Frankish realms, some of this land was obtained by the blunt method of confiscation. Under the Carolingians, many church estates were simply seized, parceled up and handed out to military retainers. Given these to manage and farm, fighting men could afford to sustain themselves and could also be bound into a system of obligation to the king or lord who allowed them to hold the land in the first place. The bond was deepened by the need for aspirant knights to learn their trade. This generally happened when parents placed their sons from mid-childhood in the household of wealthy lords, who would take on responsibility for their education and physical training, in expectation that the boys would grow up to join their military retinue. Here in outline was the basis of a complex but effective way to organise political society and it was not limited to the lands of the Carolingian Franks. Outside the Frankish realms, feudal structures, or if we're to avoid the word feudal, the land-for-arms social compact, developed. They could be found adapted to local custom and tradition in Normandy, England, Scotland, Italy, the Christian kingdoms of the northern Iberian Peninsula, the Crusader states that were established in Palestine and Syria in the 12th century, and eventually in the newly Christianized states of Hungary and Scandinavia. And by the same token, even when the western half of the Carolingian Empire experienced a dearth in strong kingship following the deaths of Charlemagne and his immediate successors, the social mechanisms of lordship and military service continued. Indeed, they became all the more important as French kingship declined from its Carolingian high watermark, and dukes Counts and other lords, including high-ranking churchmen, began to tussle with one another for the security of their individual patches. The long-term results of all this were threefold. In the first place, an ever more complex set of laws and procedures emerged to define the relations between land-givers 
and land holders. Semi-sacred rituals of homage bound people to serve and protect one another, in theory at least. And a whole raft of legally enforceable rights, obligations, payments and taxes developed around the bonds of land grants. If feudalism existed, then this is what it comprised, a complex nexus of interlocking personal relationships, which when taken as a whole, presented a haphazard but distinctive system of government. In the second, the success of a system by which large numbers of warriors could be sustained contributed to a sense, part real and part imagined, that society in the West was becoming more violent and dangerous. And in the third, the fact that warriors were now endowed as a matter of course with estates that could support an aristocratic lifestyle helped create an upper-class consciousness that lauded, indeed fetishised, supposedly knightly virtues. The code of conduct and honour, which eventually came to be known as chivalry, would by the end of the Middle Ages become something akin to a secular religion. That, at least, is the theory. But theory is hard for us to visualise. In order to better understand what the new warrior of the early second millennium looked like, how he worked within the turbulent medieval world, what he might hope to achieve in life through sheer force of arms, and how he might come to be lionised by later generations, it is better that we move from generalities to particulars and look at the career of one of the most famous characters of this early age of knighthood. The knight in question was called Rodrigo Diaz de Vivar. He was not a Frank, but a man of the Iberian Peninsula, where war was endemic, authority was fragmented, and opportunities for advancement by the strength of one's arm abounded. Those who knew him in life called him the champion, El Campeador, but he is better remembered by a bastardised Arab-Spanish colloquial nickname that was given him by bards who sang of him after his death. They knew him as Al-Said or El-Sid. El-Sid In the early 1040s, Rodrigo Diaz was born to a noble warrior family in the town of Vivar in the Kingdom of Castile, in what is now northern Spain. His father was a faithful follower of the Castilian king Fernando I, and in return for taking part in battles against Christian folk in the neighbouring kingdom of Navarre, the old man was permitted to hold large landed estates and a castle called Luna. He also introduced his boy Rodrigo, to the next generation of Castilian royalty. Rodrigo was sent to be raised, educated and trained in the ways of war at the Castilian royal court. There he was taken under the wing of Fernando's son and successor, Sancho II of Castile, who, as Rodrigo grew and flourished in the arts of fighting, groomed him as a leading officer in the royal army. When he was a young man and deemed ready to play his part in the wars of the Castilian crown, Sancho girded him with the belt of knighthood. This ceremony 
by which a sword was publicly and ritually fixed to a young warrior's side with a belt, was by the mid-11th century an important public recognition of a fighter's competence and high status. Aristocrats of the 11th century were, almost by definition, members of a military caste, and girding with a sword was therefore a major life moment for male members. They were passing out of adolescence, inexperience and the civilian life into an existence in which commanding troops and fighting would be the norm. For Rodrigo, the girding ceremony was the first step on an illustrious early career. Before long, he had risen to high command. King Sancho valued Rodrigo Diaz so highly, with great esteem and affection, that he made him commander of his whole military following, related one near contemporary biography. So Rodrigo throve and became a most mighty man of war. Besides being maintained financially by his patron, the king, Rodrigo was given the duty of carrying Sancho's royal standard into battle. And the accounts of his military prowess give a sense for just how dangerous a single properly trained and well-armed knight could be on the battlefield. At one siege in Zamora, today a picturesque town halfway between Leon and Madrid, with a domed Byzantine-era cathedral, Rodrigo was reckoned to have fought 15 enemy soldiers, seven of whom were protected by male armour. One of these he killed, two he wounded and unhorsed, and the remainder he put to flight by his spirited courage, wrote his biographer. These were impressive numbers. To repeat an old but appropriate cliché, the knight was in many ways the tank of the medieval battlefield. But just as intriguing is the reverence in this account for Rodrigo's personal valour, which cannot easily be unpicked from his military achievements. By the time Rodrigo was in his mid-thirties, he was famous. He was also moving on in the world. King Sancho was murdered, and the new power in northern Spain was his son, and very possibly his murderer, Alfonso VI, who became king of Castile, Leon and Galicia. Rodrigo joined the new king's entourage in the early 1070s. In return for his loyalty, he was granted marriage to one of Alfonso's relatives a young woman called Jimena. For employment, he was sent to a new theatre of political intrigue and martial combat. Alfonso commissioned him as an ambassador to the Islamic court of al-Mutamid, the louche but charismatic poet-emir of Seville and Cordoba. This was in theory a friendly posting. Al-Mutamid was a vassal king who owed annual tribute payments to the Castilian crown as a result of previous military defeats. And while posted to Seville, Rodrigo helped al-Mutamid to fend off attacks by a rival Islamic ruler, a victory that resulted in great carnage and casualties, but which earned him much booty, which he sent back to swell Alfonso's coffers. Unfortunately, Rodrigo's success made him unpopular, as did his growing penchant for independent campaigning. On one unauthorised raid into Muslim-held land around Toledo, he and his friends took thousands of captives and vast booty. Soon, he had attracted the jealousy of a faction of nobles at Alfonso's court, and in the middle of the year 1080, Rodrigo fell from Alfonso's favour. He was exiled from the kingdom. 
thus was one of the major flaws in the whole system of knighthood illustrated. When an able, highly trained killer was bound by obligation and reward to the service of a ruler, he could be contained and controlled. But cut loose, the warrior could be unpredictable, disruptive and dangerous. At the start of the 1080s, Rodrigo Diaz was free to sell his military talents to the highest bidder. After offering his service to the Count of Barcelona and being rebuffed, the clients he settled upon were the Islamic rulers of the Taifa kingdom of Zaragoza, members of a clan known as the Banu Hud. On their behalf, he threw himself into a campaign of raiding against the Christian kingdom of Aragon, which he ravaged and stripped of its riches and led off many of its inhabitants captive. When the king of Aragon allied with a dissident member of the Banu Hud to try to attack Rodrigo directly, Rodrigo met them in battle and bested them, capturing a large number of high-value prisoners and taking unreckonable booty, an event which was the cause of riotous partying in the streets of Zaragoza. Rodrigo continued in this vein for more than five years, building up a substantial personal military retinue said to be 7,000 strong, and a reputation as one of the most talented, if unpredictable, warriors in the Iberian Peninsula. It was probably around this time that he earned his nickname, El Cid. Soon, however, events on the peninsula underwent a radical change. Earlier in the century, a Berber dynasty of austere, conservative Muslims, known as the Almoravids, had conquered Morocco in northwest Africa. And in 1085, they set their sights on Al-Andalus. They invaded and began what amounted to a full-blooded takeover of all the petty Islamic Taifa kingdoms, whose rulers they scorned as decadent, weak-willed and ripe for removal. Neither did the Almoravids hold the Christian kings of the northern kingdoms in very high regard. In 1086 they took aim at Alfonso of Castile. In October, an Almoravid army crushed a Castilian one at the Battle of Sagrahas. Shell-shocked, Alfonso realised he needed to swallow his pride. He recalled Rodrigo to his service. Being in no position to bargain, Alfonso fairly begged him to come, promising that all the lands or castles which he might acquire from the Saracens, i.e. the Almoravids, should be absolutely his in full ownership, not only his, but also his sons and his daughters and all his descendants. This was the measure of the power that a skilled and resourceful knight could wield. He could write his own checks. Yet, as Alfonso quickly found, Rodrigo was not contented simply to write checks. Although he helped drive the Almoravids back out of Alfonso's Castilian territory, the king suspected, quite rightly, that Rodrigo had designs on setting himself up as a great lord, so it did not take very long for old grievances to resurface. By 1090, Rodrigo had fallen out with the king again and found himself accused at the royal court as an evil man and a traitor who was plotting to have Alfonso set up and murdered by the Almoravids. Irate, Rodrigo protested his innocence, appealing to the king with explicit reference to the knightly code. He was a most faithful vassal, he told Alfonso, offering to fight a royal champion in single combat to prove his innocence. 
but the king would hear none of it. So Rodrigo was an exile again. He headed back out into the world, now not as a lance for hire, but as a would-be conqueror. He had set his sights on taking the Muslim-ruled city of Valencia, roughly halfway down the east coast of modern Spain, between Barcelona and Denia. The final act of his career was about to begin. The full conquest of Valencia and the surrounding area took Rodrigo Diaz the better part of four years. It brought him into conflict with the Muslim and Christian enemies in equal measure. In the course of his campaign, he fought a memorable battle against Ramon Berenguer, Count of Barcelona, in which the Count was captured and imprisoned for a vast ransom and his camp roundly sacked. Rodrigo also raided Alfonso's lands, burning villages with relentless, destructive, irreligious fire. When the leader of the Almoravids, Yusuf ibn Tashfin, sent letters to Rodrigo, strictly forbidding him to dare to enter the land of Valencia, Rodrigo spoke of Yusuf in terms of the strongest contempt and sent his own letters all over the region, advertising his willingness to meet an Almoravid army of any size in battle and settle things one way or the other. He stuck stubbornly and unwaveringly to his principles of violent aggression in the field and meticulous attachment to a code of honour off it. And eventually his efforts were rewarded. On the 15th of June, 1094, Valencia fell. Rodrigo's men robbed the city enthusiastically, helping themselves to vast amounts of gold and silver from the citizens, so that he and his followers were rendered wealthier than it is possible to say. Rodrigo was at last the undisputed master of his own land. It was not a kingdom, but it was still a rich and strategically critical lordship, and Rodrigo would have to fight tooth and nail to defend it. In 1094, Yusuf ibn Tashfin sent a massive army to evict him. The Almoravid force was said by chroniclers to number 150,000 men. This was an exaggeration, at least by 600%, but the scale of the crisis was plain. What happened next was one of the most extraordinary encounters of the Reconquista, and the stories of what took place would understandably be heavily romanticised in later years. Rather than waiting for Yusuf to lay Valencia to siege, Rodrigo put his city into a state of emergency, sequestering every available iron item for melting down to make weapons. Then he rallied as large a force as he could and rode them out of the city, intent on outflanking the Almoravid force and driving them away. One of the more understated chronicles of the time gave a terse account of the battle that followed, which took place on the plain of Cuarte. Rodrigo and his men approached Yusuf's army, shouted at the enemy and terrified them with threatening words. They fell upon them and a major encounter ensued. By God's clemency, Rodrigo defeated all of the Moabites, i.e. the Almoravids. Thus he had victory and triumph over them, granted to him by God. A slightly later old Spanish epic poem, known as The Song of the Cid, El Canta de Mio Cid, originally sung by bards intent on memorialising Rodrigo's heroic deeds, gave the battle a full blood-and-thunder treatment. My Cid used his lance, took his sword in hand. He killed so many Moors that they were not counted. From the elbow down, the blood dripping. 
he had struck three blows against King Yusuf. He got out from under his sword, for his horse ran fast. In truth, what seems to have happened is that Rodrigo relied on a timeless military trick. He sent a small party towards the Almoravid army as a distraction before leading his main force directly against the army's unguarded battle camp, routing it, taking many prisoners and sending panic through the ranks. Whether the victory was down to personal heroism or low cunning, the outcome was the same. Rodrigo had struck a blow against the Almoravids, which showed that this Islamic invading army was far from invincible. There were echoes of Charles Martel's victory against the Umayyads at Poitiers in 732. There was plenty more campaigning to be done, but in retrospect, the clash at Coate could be identified as a turning point in the Reconquista, a point from which momentum eventually shifted in favour of the Christian states of the Spanish north. Rodrigo Diaz, the knight who had become a lord, lived and ruled in Valencia for five years after he took it and died there in 1099. Writing his obituary, even his detractors had to grant that he was the scourge of his time who, by his appetite for glory, by the prudent steadfastness of his character and by his heroic bravery, was one of the miracles of God. The author of this surprisingly generous eulogy was an Arab poet from Santarem, now in Portugal, named Ibn Bassam. As a Muslim and an admirer of the Almoravids, Ibn Bassam was culturally a long way removed from the Frankish realms that had incubated the culture of knighthood, a culture to which Rodrigo Diaz had wholeheartedly subscribed. Yet it is striking that he identified in El Cid all the paradigmatic qualities of the 11th century knight, proud, constant, courageous and dangerous. And Ibn Bassam was not alone, as other writers wrote, rewrote, romanticised and embellished El Cid's life and career. As his deeds were set to song and mythologised, they became a vehicle for not only exciting tales of daring do, but also for exploring the whole ethos of knightliness. Relics associated with him were treasured with reverence. A beautiful sword known as Tizon, or Tizona, said to be one seized from the Almoravid leader Yusuf when El Cid defeated him at Valencia, can today be seen at the Municipal Museum of Burgos in northern Spain. Since the 14th century, it has been a prized treasure, connecting its various owners to a figure who has become a national hero in Spanish culture, co-opted, somewhat dubiously, as a Christian soldier and even claimed by Hollywood. So very soon after his death, El Cid was on his way to join a new pantheon of immortals. Just as the church had its saints to give lesser mortals a lesson in good moral conduct, so the secular world was developing its own demigods, both real and mythical. Alongside El Cid, we can count Roland, King Arthur, Percival and Lancelot. These heroes exemplified a way of living and a warrior code that coalesced as chivalry. In the later Middle Ages, chivalric knightliness, like Christian saintliness, became a powerful psychological institution, which was disseminated through literary culture and informed the real-life behaviour of men and women across the Western world.